0: My idea of being a cop was having my uh, big afro, which I did eventually wear, of uh, wearing platform shoes and the skin-tight Angel Flight brand pants that you see John Travolta wearing in Saturday Night Fever. And I liked the idea of having a badge in my hip pocket and a gun in my hip and going and blending in with the crowd and trying to do stuff and basically catch people doing crime. and, And that was my idea of being a cop and that's what I wanted to do for my career. This is Wish We Were Here. I'm Noel
1: Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. On this episode, we bring you the story of Ron Stallworth. In the 1970s, he became the first black detective ever to serve in the Colorado Springs Police Department.
2: He's also the author of Black Klansmen*, a memoir about one of his most memorable investigations, which you'll hear about later in this show.
1: This episode of Wish We Were Here is going to be a little different. For the most part, we're going to let Ron tell his story. You won't hear from me and Jake much.
0: Here's Ron Stallworth. I was born in Chicago in 1953. Lived there until I was four years old. One of the smartest things my mother ever did was leave Chicago. Uh, My father, uh, and I used the term loosely, my father was in the Army. We ended up leaving Chicago when I was four, and it's a good thing because had I stayed there, I would have been right in the heart of uh, gangland. I lived in a housing project. But fortunately, we left and uh, landed in El Paso, Texas. My mother was from the south, south side of Chicago, pretty rough area of town. And my mother raised me that if anyone calls you the N-word, the so-called N-word, she said, you have two options. You'd better either kick their ass or you'd better come home and tell me why you didn't kick their ass because I'm going to kick yours for not doing it. She said you better make them respect you as an individual, as a human being, because the n-word does not represent you as a person, it does not represent you as a human being. You better not let me find out that you've been allowing people to call you that. And uh, I got kicked out of school three times growing up. but that, that, was, that was how I was raised. That was how a whole generation of us were raised, not to take any guff from anybody who used that term towards us. In 1972, my mother paid a visit to uh, her sister, my uh, aunt, whose husband was stationed at Fort Carson. My mother paid a uh, two-week visit uh, she came back home, and she said, we're moving to Colorado Springs. Just like that. In 1972, uh, we were still in the midst of the Vietnam War. Ne- I didn't believe in the war, but that was a time when they were doing the, uh, uh, what do they call it, the bubbles, where they were the, the balls, uh, the draft, the lottery, lottery draft, yeah. Because of the CBS News special report which follows, Mayberry RFD will not be presented tonight but will return next week at its regularly scheduled time over most of these stations. The Draft Lottery, a live report on tonight's picking of the birth dates for the draft. Here at- my numbers were too high for me to get called up. So I was just looking for something to do uh, with my life. And I thought uh, law enforcement would be a good idea. Uh, I was just trying to get involved in something that had career aspirations to it and uh, was not a minimum pay- wage paying job. The Colorado Springs Police Department was an all-white department at that time. When I say all-white, they did have a couple of Mexicans that worked on the department. Beyond that, the entire department was white. And they were trying to integrate the department with a black presence. So here I come along as a cadet, applying for a job as a cadet. And I was specifically told that there is a mindset, a culture within this department, and you will face a lot of obstacles if, uh, if we were to hire you. Would you be able to handle the pressure that's going to be uh, put on you? I had to sit there and listen to a whole lot of uh, N-word scenarios. What would you do if a officer comes up to you and calls you in the N-word? Uh, what if an officer tells you an N-word joke? What if you are a police officer and uh, some member of the public in, in response to your presence refers to you by the N-word? I had several of these type of scenarios thrown at me. Now keep in mind, I was 19 years old when I applied for the job as a cadet. This was basically my interview for the job of eventually becoming a police officer. And this is when they hit me with this interesting reference. I don't know if you gentlemen are familiar with Jackie Robinson, the man that broke the color line in baseball. Two or three times during the course of my interview, the term, we want you to be, Like Jackie Robinson. Can you be like Jackie Robinson and not fight back for at least a year? Why a year? That's the period of our probation when you get hired uh, under the civil service program. So they asked me for if for one year can you not respond? Can you accept somebody who will call you that without responding physically to that? And I told them yes I could. I must have said the right things because ultimately I did get hired. I'm working in the ID Bureau, behind the counter checking records, doing fingerprint checks and everything like that. Officers would occasionally come in person, instead of doing it over the radio, they come in person. And give you the name and date of birth of a person and ask you to check their record for them. And I noticed we had this term that was used around the department at the time. The, the word was toad, T-O-A-D. They would come in and say, hey, Stallworth, check this toad for me. They'd give me the name of the toad and his date of birth. I'm okay, I'd go check it. And as, as police officers, every profession has their unique lingo. So I'm One of the guys, and I'm hearing the lingo, toad, hey, I'll check the toad for you. Over time, over a short period of time, I started noticing all the toads that I was checking records on were black. Now, I said all, occasionally there would be a Hispanic toad or there would be a white toad, usually they were the more pains-in-the-butt criminal types that you encounter, but 99.9% of the time the toads I was checking records on were black so once I put two and two together and realized that toad was more of a common term reference to black people that they were using I stopped accepting it so when they would come to the counter and ask me to check on a toad I didn't hear them I could be looking right in their face and I didn't hear them so I remember one guy came into the ID Bureau one time and said stalwart check this toad for me My back was to him, and I ignored him. Stallworth, I'm talking to you. I need you to check this toad for me. I ignored him. Cadet, I'm talking to you. Check this toad for me. He raised his voice. And I slowly turned around and said, oh, were you talking to me? Yes, I need you to check the name of this toad for me. I said, we don't have any toads in here. We have people. I could check a, a name of a person for you. He got mad, got red, and he started cussing at me. I started cussing back at him. And keep in mind, I'm on probation. I can't fight back. You know, I gotta get through my one year probation to ensure that I have civil service protection and can move forward towards my attempt to become a police officer. So I'm pushing the envelope as it is. So he's yelling at me about checking the toad, and finally I said, uh, he showed me the name. I said, so you want me to check John Smith. What race is he? He's a toad. We don't have toads in the files. We have white people. We have black people. We have Hispanic people. We have Asian people. We have Native Americans. What's his ethnic background? And he's getting hotter by the minute. You know, you can almost see the steam coming off of his head. And he kept raising his voice, and I kept raising mine. And he's making threats at me, and because I'm a cadet, I'm considered a lower status within the department in the food chain, so to speak, and I'm not backing down to him. So finally, I need you to check John Smith, uh, blackmail DOB. I said, oh, I can do that. I checked it, got the information he wanted, snatched it out of my hand and walked away. That was one of the ways in which I fought some of these little r- racial battles you know, once I realized some of the games that they were playing. Little subtle things like that make a difference. From the moment I got in, I started seeing these long-haired, quote-unquote, hippie-looking dudes Coming to the identification counter asking for record checks for people. And I remember asking the uh, senior I- I- ID personnel, who are these guys? Why are they asking for record checks? And why are we cooperating with them? That's when they s- said, in hushed whisper tones, those are the darks. Whatever they want, you give to them. And if you ever see them in public, you don't recognize them, you don't say hi to them, you ignore them as if they don't exist because they may be working undercover. And I thought, This is neat. This is super neat. So I got to know some of these guys, and the sergeant in particular, in the book he's referred to as a lieutenant art, uh, because during most of my time with him, he was a lieutenant. When I first met him, he was a sergeant. I started talking to him about the prospects of becoming an undercover narcotics officer. And I remember, he, he asked me, he said, how old are you? I said, 19. He busted out laughing he said, well, first of all, you have to be a police officer and in order to be that, you have to be 21. He says, well, you got at least two years to go before you even reach that plateau. But once you become a police officer, you got to put in two years in uniform duty before you can be, be considered to become a detective, which is what a narcotics officer was. So you have to put in two years of uh, uniform duty before we can even consider putting you into narcotics. He said, come back and see me after you uh, turn 21. And then he walked away chuckling. In other words, he blew me off. You know, I'm some crazy 19-year-old kid. I said, okay. So from that point on, whenever I saw Sergeant Art, I would say, hey, Art, make me a narc. gentleman by the name of Stokely Carmichael. I don't know if you remember him. Stokely was a major player in the Black Panther Party. In fact, he was one of the leaders. He came into town. He was being sponsored by the old Bell's Nightingale Club. It was one of the major black nightclubs. You had Bell's Nightingale and you had uh, Fannie Mae Duncan's Cotton Club on uh, Colorado uh, Colorado Avenue. Bell's was sponsoring Stokely Carmichael. He was coming into town to give a presentation. And all of our narcotic officers were white. They had trouble penetrating the drug community within the black population. So with Stokely coming into town, Art remembered that I had been pushing to try to get into narcotics, do undercover work, and I was approached and asked if I wanted to do an undercover assignment, a special undercover assignment. That assignment was to go into the bar and to monitor Stokely Carmichael's speech Because the department was concerned about the incendiary tone of his rhetoric and uh, whether or not it would have an impact on on the community and whether or not we as a police department should uh, be prepared to do something. Now by this time I was a patrolman. Uh, I had been on the job for uh, about a year, a little more than a year, and uh, when he approached me about this I was tickled to death. Finally my dreams, my wishes are coming true. I said, yeah, I wanna do this. So I got a crash course in undercover work. All the NARCs were basically explaining, okay, if this happens, you respond this way. Or if somebody says this, this is what you should say. They told me the price of drugs in the undercover market. Heroin goes for this, marijuana goes for that. It comes in different amounts. This is the lingo that they talk. And I'm sitting there and I'm absorbing all this and I'm I'm just like a kid in a candy store. And, um, they gave me a little bit of cash, city cash, and uh, told me to go into the bar. And I asked the most important question that an undercover cop possibly asked their boss when they go into the work. I said, can I uh, drink alcohol? They said, yeah, you can have one drink. That's it. I said, okay, good. So... I go into Bell's Nightingale. Natural Instinct set in. I found a a chair near the back of the uh, bar with with my back to the door by by an exit. Bought myself my first alcoholic drink while on the job. And uh, (laughs) it was a rum and coke, by the way. And uh, I remember sitting there. There were a lot of people in that bar. uh, A lot of pimps, uh, dope dealers who I recognized, and uh, business people. It was was a mixture of people who had come to hear Stokely's speech. This period of time now, we're talking right around 1975. Panthers had started to die down as a major entity, but they were still a force to be reckoned with in the country, and that's why our department was concerned about them. And um, Stokely is introduced, got a rousing applause, the the place was packed with people, and um, he gave his usual incendiary uh, speech. This country is built on lies. They told you and me that if we worked hard and if we sweated, that we would succeed and become rich. And if that were true, I tell you, we would own this country.
1: I tell you we would own this country.
0: The interesting part about Stokely, about anyone who is a charismatic speaker a charismatic leader, I found out that night, is that you can get caught up in their charisma. Uh, here I am, a police officer with a specific job and that's to monitor his speech and listen for overtones that might be of a, a specific concern to us as cops for purposes of uh, security later on should all hell break loose within the city. But I'm also a black man. I'm a black man who grew up at during the Civil Rights Movement who had been the subject of the very mistreatment he had been talking about. So here I am, face to or, face, or literally a few feet away from Stokely Carmichael, one of the principal players of that time period when I was in my youth, and I'm hearing him giving this usual talk like he gave back in those days, you know, literally seven years earlier. And uh, at one point, he was talking about, we're gonna have to pick up the gun, there's gonna be a race war, and As black people, we need to pick up the gun and be prepared to kill Whitey and everything else. And the crowd started yelling, right on, and throwing up the black power fist. And I found myself caught up in it, and I jumped up out of my chair along with everyone else yelling, right on, you know, know, giving the black power fist. And then it dawned on me, what the hell are you doing? You're a police officer. You're supposed to be monitoring this stuff, not participating in it. Had a dual function. I was I was operating in a dual in a, in a dual world, if you will. So I was existing in both worlds and was responding as a black man, as opposed to focusing on being the cop that I should have been. He finishes his speech, and then there was the receiving line of people to greet uh, Stokely and you know extend well wishes. And I got into the line. You got to keep in mind this is now 1975. Stokely was person from my high school years of 1967 to 71. I remember watching him on TV. I remember seeing him at various points with Dr. King, Malcolm X, you know. This was living history, black history to me. I wasn't going to pass out on the opportunity to at least shake his hand and say hi, whether I agreed with him or not. So I got in the receiving line, everybody's moving down, my turn comes, and I grabbed his hand and said, Brother Stokely, do you honestly believe there's gonna be a race war between blacks and whites? And he grabbed my hand, and Stokely was about six feet four, coffee-colored skin, and he grabbed my hand, he pulled me in real close, very close. And in a very conspiratorial tone and, and, and demeanor, he looked around like that out to both sides, and he said, get ready, brother, get prepared gonna have to kill Whitey. The war's coming." I said, okay, thank you, and I shook his hand and wished him well. He said, you take care, brother, you be good. And I walked off and went and reported to my superiors and told them that Stokely still, still has the verbal power, you know. He had the public literally in the palm of his hand, And if Stokely had said go out and do something right then and there, I think they would have gone out and done something right then and there. This was around, roughly around April of 75. Around uh, August, I was in the urinal with Carl Petrie, the assistant chief of police in charge of detectives. Chief Petrie was the type of individual that he didn't say anything to anybody. He just went about his business and you could say hi to him and he wouldn't respond. Or if he was in the mood, he might say hello and just keep walking and never acknowledge you beyond that. So we're standing side by side in the urinal in the bathroom and out of the clear blue, he says, Stallworth, do you want to be a narc agent? And I turned and looked at him, I said, yes, sir. He said, report to, uh, report to the narcotics office at 5 p.m. Uh, tomorrow night. He said, yes, sir. And he finished his business and left. And, I finished my business, and when I made sure I was alone in the bathroom, I started jumping up and down and pumping my hands and yelling and screaming and, you know, kind of got crazy for a moment because my year and a half long effort of, hey art, make me an ARC, had finally come to fruition. It was happening. I was on my way. And that's how I ended up in the narcotics division. Was standing at the urinal next to the assistant chief of police and detectives.
2: And did you get to Grouch your afro and get the platform shoes like you had envisioned. Oh, hell yeah! <laughs> You're listening to Wish We Were Here. We'll be right back.
1: Welcome back to Wish We Were Here, I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. If you're just joining us, we're listening to Ron Stallworth, the Colorado Springs Police Department's first black detective. After serving several
2: years as an undercover agent in narcotics, Ron had a falling out with one of his superiors and got transferred to the intelligence division. Ron picks up the story there. It was October,
0: yeah, yeah, roughly around October of 78. Sitting in my office, one of the things we did, I was in the intelligence division, Intelligence was responsible for just that. We maintained files on subversive groups, um, outlaw motorcycle gangs, for example. Sons of Silence, as you are well aware of around this area, were considered a subversive group. We maintained files on them. We kept track on any adverse activity that was going on in the city or potentially would go on in the city. We were also responsible for VIP protection. One of the things we did routinely was every morning we would pick up the two newspapers. Back then it was the Gazette, Telegraph, and the Colorado Sun. We would pick up these newspapers and we would read them to see what was being reported on and see if there was anything of interest that maybe we should take a closer look at. We also read the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post to see if there was anything up there that had a tie-in to us as a city. This was routine activity. And on this particular occasion, I was reading uh, one of the papers, I can't remember which one, and I saw this ad in the classifieds that said Ku Klux Klan for information, and then there was a uh, P.O. box. So I had the bright idea to respond to the ad. I wrote a little note, identifying myself as a white man who hated the direction the country was going in, if this sounds familiar. But I said I didn't like the direction our country was going in and that we needed to take it back. And I used the N-word a couple of times, uh, and we needed to reclaim our country. I can't remember the specifics of the letter I wrote. But I wrote this letter, and then I did a fatal mistake, something that uh, I can only subscribe to uh, the result of having a brain cramp that day. I signed the letter Ron Stallworth instead of using my undercover name. I had two different undercover names that I used when I made cases. And for some reason, I signed Ron Stallworth to the letter. And then I gave the undercover phone line that we use for making cases, which is something that, you know, probably shouldn't have done either. So I had my real name, the undercover phone line, put this in an envelope, mailed it off, forgot about it. About a week or so later, maybe two weeks, I forget the time frame I get a phone call at the office, the intelligence office. I pick up the phone, and this voice on the other end identifies himself as Ken. He says, this is Ken, the local organizer of the Ku Klux Klan, and I got your letter and uh, very interested in it. And I'm thinking, first of all, he asked for Ron Stallworth. I said, nobody calls Ron Stallworth on the cover phone line. They may call Freddie Washington, which was one of my undercover names. They may call Dwight Jefferson, which was one of my undercover names. But nobody calls Ron Stallworth on this line. So when he called and asked to speak to Ron Stallworth, I'm kind of freaking out. How did this happen? So he says, this is Ken, the local organizer for the Ku Klux Klan. I got your letter, was very impressed, and wanted to talk to you about it. Why do you want to join the Klan? So I said, what the hell? I said, I hate the N word, I hate Mexicans, I hate Jews, I hate Asians. You name the ethnicity, I told him I hated them all, which is the buzzwords that they like to hear, the buzzwords of hate. And I wanted to do something about it. Then to punctuate it, I said, An N word person is dating my sister. And every time he puts his filthy black hands on her body, it just pisses me off. And I want to do something about it. Keep in mind, he thinks I'm white. He said, you're just the kind of guy we want. When can we meet? We set up a meeting at the quick end down in uh, security. And um, he said, a guy will pick me up. And he told me what this guy would look like. Solly said he gave me a description of this guy. And I gave him a description of myself, minus skin color. The person I was referring to was the guy in my book I referred to as Chuck. That's just a name that I threw out. That's not his real name. Chuck was one of the undercover narcotic officers at the time. And I knew how Chuck came dressed for work every day, what style of clothing he wore. So I just I described what Chuck would look like. Chuck and I were physically about the same height, same weight. Like I said, I basically described myself except skin color. So we hung up, I immediately went to my sergeant, told my sergeant about the conversation, and went from my sergeant to the narcotic office, which was across the hall, and asked for the use of Chuck to pose as me for the meeting. Chuck became Ron Stalworth for this investigation. He was still a narcotic officer. He was still making drug cases, and he was only used when it required a face-to-face meeting. When there were no face-to-face meetings, I, I was the one talking on the phone. Chuck would go to a meeting that I had set up posing as me. I would always wire Chuck up for sound so I could sit out on surveillance in the car and hear what was going on. And then Chuck would leave the meeting, come back to the office, I'd wait sometimes maybe a half hour, hour and then I'd call Ken, the local organizer, and call him back to elaborate on something that he had said during the course of this meeting with Chuck. So within a half hour or an hour, I physically talking to Ron Starworth, white Ron Starworth, the black Ron Starworth, the real me, would call him up and talk to him about a matter, which is part of the irony of this investigation. If you Had Chuck sitting here right now talking to you, you would clearly hear two separate, distinct voices. We do not sound alike. And yet, only one time was I ever challenged. One time uh, I called after Chuck had been with him for about an hour or two. I called back to elaborate on something that was said. And Ken immediately said, what's the matter with you? Your voice sounds different. And I (coughs) I coughed. And I said, oh, I have a sinus infection. He said, oh, I get those all the time. Here's what you need to do to take care of that. When you do an undercover assignment, if you can, from that initial phase, when you have contact with somebody, if you can reel them in to your storyline, have them believe in you from the very first moment, you've got them. I was successful reeling Ken in from the very first moment. All Chuck had to do was maintain that cover and really mean a little further. And the biggest challenge for Chuck and I was that Chuck had to know what I had said on the phone. I had to be able to take Chuck's face-to-face conversation and be able to communicate to Ken next time we talked as if I had been the one who had been physically there. So we had conversational flow with one another in terms of making sure there was no break in the action. I had told Chuck when I had sent him off on this uh, assignment, I told him, I said, I want you to basically go in there and get as much literature as you possibly can, learn as much as you possibly can. Remember, we we were an intelligence unit. We wanted intelligence on this group. And so Ken had already revealed a lot, and then he gave Chuck an application packet, told Chuck how to fill the application out and uh, how much money it would cost. I actually filled the application out. It required a photograph, and I took a photograph of Chuck sitting in, in my, my office. And the next day, I got the money from uh, the city and uh, got a money order, I believe it was, and mailed it off to David Duke, the Grand Wizard, down in um, Metairie, uh, Louisiana, which is a suburb of New Orleans. And that started the process. After sending my application in, you're supposed to get your membership card within a couple of weeks is what they said. I didn't get it. I waited about 3 weeks, didn't get it. Ken kept telling me, "Oh, you've got you've been confirmed as a member. I I I've, I've talked to uh, I've talked to Duke and Duke's told me that you're a member." But I don't have a card, and I was told that you can't participate in any of our activities until you get a card. So basically I'm a clansman if you will in limbo. So, finally I said, to heck with it. I picked up the phone and I called David Duke directly. I introduced myself again as Ron Starworth, new Klan member down in Colorado Springs, eager to participate, but can't because I don't have my card. Can you please check it out for me? And I hear the rustling of papers in the background and finally Duke says, oh, here it is. He said, oh, we've had some administrative problems and everything and it got lost in the shovel. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He says, I'll personally put your card and, and, and certificate together and get it in the mail to you, then we'll be good. Tell us about David Duke a little bit, if you would. On a personal level, David Duke was a very nice, uh, soft-spoken, very good conversationalist. The kind of guy, if uh, you get him off the subject of race, ethnicity, and the KKK in particular, you could have a very nice chat with him. You know, very nice chat. But point is, you never could get him off of that subject.
2: Maybe talk a little bit about the makeup, like demographically, of the Klan members and what walks of life they
0: came from. Most of them were, they were white, obviously. Most of them were from the Army stationed at Fort Carson. Uh, there was a couple of truck drivers that uh, uh, showed up. Uh, all of them said the same thing, that they had been mistreated or been on the wrong end of uh, in, uh, involvement with a inward person. Although, interestingly enough, Ken, the local organizer, was married to a Hispanic woman. They had three cross burnings planned. Participating in the burning of a fiery cross, as they call it, is a very important event in their existence. It's considered an honor. I passed up on the honor on two occasions. They called, talked to me on the phone, told me that they were gonna have a cross burning, gave me the location. It was always gonna be in a, a strategic high point in Colorado Springs to where anywhere in the city, you'd probably be able to see it. It was gonna be 17 by eight foot crosses, so they were gonna be big. They told me uh, they were going to soak the crosses in kerosene and then told me how they were going to ignite it. They were going to go to the location, dig a trench to put the cross in, And they say they got this method of of igniting the cross from a James Bond movie. They were going to smoke a cigarette down until there was about a minute left of it to burn. And they were gonna take a pack of matches, put the pack at the base, stick the unsmoking cigarette at the base, and then drive away. A Minute later, the cigarette will burn down, ignite the uh, pack of matches, and whoosh, you have a burning, fiery cross, and they're they're nowhere near the uh, vicinity. They had three cross burnings planned, and each time they gave me their plans, I would contact our shift commander, who was the lieutenant in charge, ahead of time and tell him on such and such date and time the clan is planning a cross burning at this location. Can we have saturated police patrols in the area? We put this plan in motion. Twenty-four hours would pass. I'd get a call from the Klan. Well, how'd it go? How was the cross burning? Uh, we didn't do it. What happened? Well, we go to the location to set the cross up and everything, and we saw a police car driving east, we saw another one driving west, we saw one going north, and we saw one going south. But we decided it was in our best interest not to do it. And that happened on two occasions. The third time they planned on a cross burning, ultimately they just decided to cancel that one because they said something came up, and they just decided, because of the lack of success of the previous two, They just wouldn't do it this time. We were getting information from the Klan. The Klan was tied in with the Posse Comitatus, a local far-right-wing extremist group, very popular at the time. The local Klan group had meetings in which representatives of the American Nazi Party showed up. They had meetings where the Grand Dragon from the Alabama Ku Klux Klan showed up. This is what we were dealing with. The Anti-Defamation League, the head of that up in Denver, was in communication with me. Uh, she was providing me with information that they had, which I couldn't get anywhere else. I, in turn, was passing information on to her, and she, she was, she thought this whole thing was hilarious, that a black man was pulling off the stunt that we were pulling off. And uh, she called me one day and asked me, she said, my president, national president in New York, is asking me to ask you if you can ask David Duke something on our behalf. I said, what do you want to know? I forget what it was, but she told me, I called David Duke up and posed the question to him. And he answered it. So I would call her back and say, David Duke says this about your question. So unwittingly, David Duke was snitching on himself to the hated Anti-Defamation League, which he despised with a passion. You know, and we used to do that on several occasions. Investigation itself uh, began around October, and the official end of it, where I was told to no longer have any contact with them, occurred around April. So that's about seven months, I believe. And we still started getting information coming in afterwards, so I was still following up on it, but officially the investigation had been concluded. And what was it that concluded it? Ken was a soldier in the Army, and he was getting out of uh, Fort Carson. And he and the other clan members, the soldiers, had uh, discussed having more stability within the local leadership. Being a GI, you know, they come and go every three years or so. So what Ken did, he had taken a private uh, vote, if you will, among his members— without telling Chuck or me and had decided that they wanted local leadership and they decided they wanted Ron Stalworth to become the local leader of the Klan because he had proven to be a, uh, a dedicated and loyal Klansman. As undercover cops, we cannot participate in criminal activity. It's called entrapment. So when... He told Chuck in person about this. Chuck did what any good cop would do, was try to talk his way out of a potential entrapment situation. Ken was insistent, nope, we voted and we decided we want you, and several of the members came up to Chuck in person and said, we agree with Ken, we, we think you're the best man suitor for the job. In the same vein, Ken is talking to me on the phone about running the Colorado Springs chapter of the Klan. We voted, we won it. I kept putting him off. Chuck would put him off at face-to-face meetings. Finally, I had a conversation with Ken, and Ken was adamant, you've got to take over the Klan. And that's when I went to my uh, chief and told the chief, chief, this is what's going on. These guys are very adamant. They want Ron Starworth to become the local leader of the Klan. I said, and quite frankly, I'd like to do it. I feel that we would be successful in further penetrating the white supremacist groups here in Colorado. And uh, the chief wouldn't buy it, he said no. He felt this has gone on far enough. He ordered me not to answer any more phone calls from the Klan. In fact, he told us to shut the undercover phone line down and have the number changed. He told me not to have Chuck go into any further meetings with uh, Ken and company. Uh, not to respond to any mailings that may come in to the undercover mailbox, you know? And basically he said, I want Ron Stallworth Klansman to disappear.
1: Shortly after the Ku Klux Klan investigation was shut down, Ron Stallworth left the Colorado Springs Police Department. After working in several other states, he finished off his career in Utah, where he still lives today. To this
0: day, Ron carries his KKK card, signed by David Duke, in his wallet. I also have a membership certificate that hung in the wall of my office the last 15 years of my career in Utah. And I remember the public safety commissioner coming in to see me about a matter, and he saw this KKK certificate hanging on the wall, and he literally stopped talking to me and walked past me and got up close to the certificate. Finally he read, he said, is this real? I said, yes, sir, it is. <laughs> he said, is it appropriate for one of my sergeants to have something like this on their wall? I said, well, is it appropriate to have the head of dead animals and dead fish on plaques hanging on walls? I'm not a hunter or a fisherman, but all the outdoorsmen in our state have this type of stuff hanging on their walls. I said, this is basically a memorabilia from um, my police career, and that's why it's on there. And he finally relented. He said, OK, I see your point, carry on. and My Klan membership certificate hung on my wall in my office in Utah for the last 15 years of my career.
1: Even with such an illustrious and pioneering career as the first black detective in Colorado Springs, Stallworth still has a complicated relationship with the world he comes from and the career he loved.
0: As black police officers, um, especially during my period of time, we're talking 1972, when I first got hired within the department as a cadet. There's a duality that exists. You're too blue for the black community and too black for the white community. You know, so where do you fit in? Where do you fit in? You had to find your place because the black community considers you a snitch, a traitor to the cause, because you've chosen to put on that uniform and badge and represent the forces of authority that Stokely was preaching against. Okay? And even today when I give interviews, sometimes I get, especially if I'm being interviewed by a black member of the uh, media, they ask me, well, how did you feel about going in undercover and, and, and uh, dealing with Brother Stokely? I said, it was part of my job. The fact that he was black had nothing to do with it. It was part of my job. So you live in a dual duality, uh, a dual world, uh, and you have to find your place in that world. I basically took the position that this is who I am, this is what I am, the black community can accept me or reject me, I don't need their approval, I don't need their validation. By the same token, the the officers who were not willing to accept me at the time because of my blackness, uh, they could all go straight to hell as far as I was concerned. I I had to represent myself as an individual and move forward as an individual. Ironically, some of those same officers who uh, initially did not accept me are my lifelong friends and whenever I come into town, I give them a call, we meet for coffee and, and we laugh and joke, you know, so though, we, we have bridged that gap, we bridged that gap a long time ago, but uh, this is the world that I lived in at that time as, and, and again, I was 19 years old when this started.
2: Many thanks to
1: Ron Stallworth, author of Black Klansman, which you can download from the Kindle store online. Music in this episode is by Lee Rosevere, The Budos Band, Saren, Poddington Bear, Deadly Combo, Chris Zabriskie, Kevin McLeod, Anthony Rayakoff, and All Shall Be Well.
2: Many thanks to our production assistant, Amelia Whitmer, and our intern,
1: Charlie Neves. Wish We Were Here is a production of KRCC Radio Colorado College in Colorado Springs. You can subscribe to our podcast at iTunes and Stitcher. For KRCC and Wish We Were Here, I'm Noel Black and I'm Jake Brownell.